Acts chapter 5. We're going to finish the chapter this morning, starting with verse 29. We'll do a little bit of overlap from last Sunday, but then we'll get into some new stuff. To catch us up a little bit, the apostles have been miraculously freed from prison by an angel of the Lord. And it was for a purpose. They weren't freed to just go back and live their lives. They were freed to go stand firm and to speak life to those around them. And not surprisingly, guess what? Believer, you've been saved and set free for the same purpose. To go, to stand firm on the truth, and to speak life to a world that needs to hear it. God was using this event in the lives of the apostles. And we're going to see this morning that it wasn't just a vacation overnight in a Hilton. Okay, there were some serious consequences that came along with this imprisonment. But God was using this kind of thing to prepare his people for future ministry, for future life. Because each one of these apostles would suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. And yet they said, as boldly as... Anyone could say it. They said, we must obey God rather than men. And they spoke to the religious council about Jesus. They preached this mini sermon that had the opposite effect that most preachers hope for. It enraged his audience and made them want to kill him. That is not my goal when I stand before you on a Sunday morning. I don't know that it was Peter's either, and yet that's the reaction that they had. What what was it exactly that caused them to, to just grind their teeth in hatred at him? Why did they want to kill him? Well, that's what we're going to look at in verses 30 through 32. But then we'll continue on through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. So Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we'll start with. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, They were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus... Uh, Thudeus, Thudeus, I don't know how you say that, guys. Um, He rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we have been reminded and impressed to stand firm. And that is a a great encouragement and it is a challenge for each of us. And yet you've been so kind as to show us an example of this persistence in your people here. That they even rejoiced in their suffering because they were like Jesus in it. Lord, we are in some ways really far removed from this because we want comfort and we want ease and we want to know what's coming. And you don't promise any of these things to your people, but you promise them something better. You promise us something better that you will never leave us. You are always with us. In fact, that you go before us. You've given us your very spirit to dwell inside of us, to lead us to truth and repentance and holiness. And so, Lord, we need this reminder and this example called back to our minds through our ears yet again this morning because some of us are walking into situations at home or at work or in different places where there's, there's an attack on, on Jesus and they know that we love him. And so they attack us too. And it may be something as uh, just passive aggressiveness or maybe active persecution. I don't know, Lord, but we need, to, we need to be reminded of your goodness even in these things. And so I pray that you would use your word to stir the hearts of us who are, who are lazy right now, who need to be stirred up, Lord. Comfort those who are hurting Give us ears to hear the truth of your message of the gospel today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what was it? That's the question that I asked. What was it that Peter, on behalf of all the apostles, said in his sermon? It's a really short sermon, too. What did he say that made them so angry? Well, he starts after saying, pretty much, we can't listen to you because God is greater. After that, he says... The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Now, lots of of preaching how-to books talk about starting a sermon with with a hook. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's something kind of catchy that will you can call back through, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. Um, look at Peter's hook. If, if you want to call it that. He points a finger at him and said, you killed the Messiah. Our God, he's including himself in that as a Jew, our, our God raised him up after you killed him. Okay, so that's what Peter starts his sermon with. He points the finger, you did it. You better believe this got their attention. This got them interested. It wasn't probably the way that preaching books tell you to nowadays, but this got their attention. And it's the same thing that Peter's already said. If you flip back, just turn back to Acts 3. His sermon right there, after 
uh, well, well, he gets to stand up on the day of Pentecost. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. And he's talking to Jews like this that are on this council. He says, this father of ours glorified his servant Jesus. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. He said that already in Acts 3. Acts 4, his message is very similar. When he stands to address the council, he says, By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Now he's saying the whole thing again in Acts chapter 5. The council remember, are made up of a bunch of Sadducees, for the majority. They're guys who don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in afterlife. Nothing else beyond this world here and now. And and Peter, just over and over, is pounding this idea of not only did you kill him, but God raised him. He's not dead anymore. And so this is, you can imagine, just kind of sticking in their craw a little bit. And they don't like this. And so they don't like Peter. It infuriated them. Peter goes then after, I think, the same thing that uh, Pilate recognized before Jesus' death. It's the same thing that Luke talks about in his gospel and the one that he's already pointed out, jealousy. They're jealous. He says in verse 31 here of Acts 5, he says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, talking about Jesus, and the purpose was to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. See, the problem was that these religious leaders, they wanted to be the ones who were exalted amongst the people. They wanted their name to be known, and they were jealous of not only the apostles and their fame, but certainly of Jesus Christ. And I think that's one of the reasons why they can't even bring themselves to say his name. They want to be looked up to. And yet now Peter is saying, actually the one you have to look up to is the one whom you killed. He and he alone is the one who can grant forgiveness of sins, he says. Really, Jesus told them this was how it was going to be. Back in Luke chapter 22 at his trial, Jesus says this. He says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of of the power of God. So they, and this is this religious council, so they said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. And they condemned him. But Jesus said this was how it was going to be. He's going to be at the right hand of God in power. And Peter says here in these verses, he says that Jesus is God's true leader and savior. Leader can also be translated author or captain or prince. Savior also is, can be translated deliverer. And that's what he says about Jesus, the guy whom they killed, who don't want to believe raised from the dead. He's the guy. Peter was trying, I think, to make just abundantly clear, this is who Jesus is. There's no confusion. There's, there's no double speak here. He's trying to make abundantly clear to them who he is. And so Peter says, our father, our God, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the guy who raised Jesus from the dead. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. So there's no mistake. 
of what Peter is talking about here, what he's teaching. It's Jesus, the Jesus whom the Israelites and the Romans both nailed to the cross. He's the one who is seated at God's right hand in power because God has risen him from the dead. Peter's clear in this. So I don't want us to think or believe or be led astray to believe that you can be a Christian but not believe Jesus really died and rose again and now sits at God's right hand. You can't say you know Jesus and deny those things. Because the very first preaching of the church focuses on these things. It's Jesus. It's really him. Because there there are some in our society and in our culture and in our world who would want to deceive you into thinking that just sincere belief in something is enough to be made right with God. Just believe If you're sincere in believing whatever it is, God will look on that and have mercy on us on your final day and let you go into heaven. Friends, the Bible never teaches that. Don't believe that. Because it's popular in our day and age to say that just genuine faith is saving faith. But the Bible says that that's not enough. Just true belief, real belief, genuine belief in something isn't enough. Why? Well, because Jesus claims that specific belief in something is what saves. And he says, you have to believe in him. You have to believe in his sacrifice, in his resurrection, in his payment for sin in your life. He, he says, is the only way, the only truth of the only life. You only get to the Father in heaven through him. Genuine belief in Buddha is not going to get it done. It's not, fill in that blank with any other belief system or any other little G God, and it's not enough. This is, this flies in the face of a, of a, a culture that preaches tolerance and acceptance. But it's biblical. It's what God says. It's an exclusive claim that flies in the face of an all-inclusive cultural mindset. But if you say you believe and follow the Bible, this is what you have to believe. It's not bigoted. It's not narrow-minded because the path is open to all. The message is given the same to all. It's open to all who would believe what the Bible actually says. And then to all who trust Jesus, not just another God or not just another person or process. To believe that you can reach heaven on your own or through anyone else, I think minimizes the cross, it minimizes the sacrifice of Jesus, and it minimizes the sovereignty of God. The preaching of Jesus and those who knew him best would leave no wiggle room here at all. The one who hung on the tree is the only one who gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's what Peter says. He's given to God's people for that purpose, for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now notice that repentance doesn't seem to be just something that we can decide to do in our own strength and ability. The exalted and glorified Jesus gives it to you. He grants it, other translations of that say. See, repentance is a gift of God. And every person who hears this good news is called to respond This is the plan of old from the beginning when Jesus, it says, uh, opened his mind or opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures after his resurrection. 
uh, before he ascended into heaven, that said of Jesus. Uh, he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5 verse 32, Luke says, we are, are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Do, do you catch the similarities in this, the wordings of these things? Maybe this will make it even more clear. In Luke 24, verse 48, Jesus says this, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What the apostles are experiencing in Acts chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and really beyond is exactly what Jesus foretold would happen. You're witnesses to these things. The Holy Spirit is given to God's people. Now, I'm not sure 100% that this is significant or not in the way that Luke writes it, but there's a difference of just a little two-letter word in what Jesus says and what it, in what Luke says. Jesus says to the apostles that they are witnesses of these things as observers of them. But Luke says now that they are witnesses to these things as proclaimers of them. Do you, do you catch the this small detail that me, makes a big difference? It's a difference between observing or watching a fantastic ending to a football game with your own eyes or maybe even being there in person and the difference between that and just talking about it around the water cooler the next day at work. Anybody even have water coolers at your jobs anymore? You know what I mean, right? Talking about it with friends at work. So one, you laid eyes on it. You, you were there and in the moment and you experienced it. But the other one, you're just kind of talking about it after the fact. Well, uh, one, you observe, one, you talk about. One, you merely watch and really have little stake in to just observe it. But when you're talking about it, now they're like, oh man, people are going to know I'm a Giants fan. Or what's a bad team in the NFL? I don't even... The Brown, Giants, I was right? Okay. If Ray was here, I'd have said Cowboys, but he's not, he's not here. But you see the difference? Like you have stake in it now. You, like you're a fan of that team. You're talking about the great ending. And that's what Luke is, is describing the apostles as. They have stake in this. Not only did they observe it with their eyes, hear it with their ears, but now they're to be proclaimers of it. They're talking about it with their friends and their family, with all those who needed to hear it. This reinforces exactly what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, right? That's Pentecost. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this is happening right here in the book of Acts. And it's exciting, guys. Now, this is the Jerusalem aspect of it still. We're still in Jerusalem. We haven't quite gotten free of that yet. We're getting there. We're almost there. It's going to start breaking out beyond that. But here we're in Jerusalem, and these guys are seeing, are being uh, sent out to witness what they observed about Jesus personally. They're going to be a witness to these things, not just of them. Are we doing the same? 
you can come to worship service. You can listen on the radio. You can watch on TV and hear a great sermon and be encouraged. But there's a difference between that and then going out and witnessing to those things about Jesus, isn't there? You have a stake in it when you go and proclaim those things with your own mouth. And that's what we're called to do. Are we actively participating in what God is doing in, our, in, in the world? Peter says in verse 32 that they were witnesses to the mercies and judgment of God through Jesus. And he says also the Holy Spirit is too. He says so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was agreeing with their testimony of Jesus by supernaturally enabling them to preach with boldness and do these incredible miracles. That was the Holy Spirit uh, giving his stamp of approval, if you would, his involvement in this. And, and Peter says, and so, and so it is with everyone who obeys him. Talking about Jesus Christ. This phrase, those who obey him, identifies specific people. Specifically people who obey Jesus, who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. To be clear, their obedience to Jesus doesn't save them. Uh, it's, it's always imperfect obedience after all. But it's the fruit in keeping with repentance and faith which demonstrates that they are genuinely saved. That's what Jesus calls to the, to the religious leaders who are Pharisees. He says, hey, you should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And to every believer, I think the same call is made. Bear that kind of fruit. If someone is granted repentance and forgiveness of sins by God, they also have received the Spirit of God. If a person never demonstrates some evidence of obedience to God, of a lifestyle in keeping with God's will and His Word, then there's reason to be concerned that this person's profession of faith in Christ was simply a profession and not actually possessing the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. This is what the Sanhedrin heard that day in verse 33. It says that they, that's what enraged them. That's what caused them to want to kill them. I mean, you can see from Peter's just three pretty short sermons so far, th there's a point to them. And it's all the same. The gospel is not being sugarcoated here, is it? There's in no way you could look at this and say that. But you can see from his sermons already that the gospel message hurts before it heals. It stings before it soothes. It shows us death before it gives us life. Over and over, Peter points the finger saying it was their sin that crucified the Christ. It was their rejection of him as Savior that has separated them and God and yet each time he offers hope, doesn't he? He offers hope by, by calling them back to repentance, faith, and obedience. And guys, it's the same hope that the gospel offers today. It's the same hope. The gospel still stings before it soothes, and yet it does soothe. It's a beautiful message that every Christian loves to continue hearing Sometimes we sing that old hymn about that old, old story that we love to hear. We ought to. There ought never, never be a time in our life when we say, oh, I've heard all of this before. Move to something better because what better could there be? 
verse 34 through verse 40 are this kind of an interesting section. We'll sort of tackle this as a whole. We look at this situation, we find that a Pharisee stands up. Jason, I don't know if I'll get a high five from you for pronouncing this guy's name right or not, but uh, Gamaliel, that's how I'm going to say it. Um, this guy, he stands up before the group, um, and he, more or less, he saves the apostles from the murderous impulses of this Sanhedrin group. He saves them. This is likely the same Gamaliel in Acts chapter 22 that's mentioned as who mentors Saul before he uh, encounters the Lord. Um, we don't know the heart of this man. You, some look at his appeal to the Sanhedrin here and say he had the apostles' best interest at heart, and so there were there, therefore there might have been some good in him. Maybe he was a kind of a... Um, Secret disciple of Jesus, sort of like Nicodemus was at first, coming to him at night so as to not be seen. Uh, maybe even Joseph of Arimathea has been thought to be sort of a secret disciple of Jesus, giving him his tomb after he died. Um, but he also could come across here as just trying to stick it to the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee, and if you didn't know, the Pharisee group and the, and the Sadducee group did not get along. Um, but when it came to Jesus, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know that saying? But here, maybe he was just trying to stick it to the Sadducees and using his influence to sort of uh, do something that they wouldn't like by letting these Jews go free. There's really not enough evidence to know where his heart is in this, but we do know that he mentored Saul, who later went to heavily persecute the people of God, at least for a time. But this guy says he's respected by all the people. He stands up and he... And he argues very pragmatically, practically, for the release of the apostles. He says, more or less, if, if, here's some examples, and he lists a couple of guys who people followed for a time, and then they died, and it died out. You notice that he never mentioned either of those other guys raised from the dead. Uh, but that's, he said, if it's like any of that sort of thing, you don't have to do anything, and it'll be gone. It'll be done. And I think that was maybe his intention in this, right? Because the whole time, they're jealous of the apostles and their influence and power. And they're afraid of the, what the people are going to do. They're afraid of, of being um, rejected as leaders and their control being removed from them. And so maybe Gamaliel here is saying, like, look, you don't have to stick your neck out by doing anything to these guys, because if it if it's what we think it is and just some random street preacher, street preacher trying to get a group together, it's just going to fizzle out. So you don't have you won't have to do anything. So he gives them this counsel. In verse thirty nine, he makes a really interesting statement. He says, "You might even be found opposing God." And I laugh at that statement. Simply because it reminds me of the book of Judges. Uh, our small groups have been going through the book of Judges. And it, it really highlights this fascinating strategy of God. That God uses and he, and he emphasizes it a lot of times in the Old Testament. Uh, certainly in the New as well. But God often uses unlikely sources to help his people or to get his message across. And you can probably think of a few. I'll help that thinking along. You can think of Pharaoh. In Egypt, 
God used him for the release of his people. King Cyrus allowed Ezra and the Jews to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to come after that and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Think of another pharaoh who was over uh, the land when Joseph was sold into slavery. Raised him up to second in command, didn't he? God uses unlikely and unexpected people for his purposes. God even used a donkey to get his message across, didn't he? If he can do that, he can use you too. He can use a king. He can use a president. He might even be able to use a preacher. But he does it. He gets his message across to his people. And here he uses a well-liked Pharisee to save the early church leaders when things were kind of in a tender state, right? Uh, It was sort of just getting started. There were a lot of people following this message. I read this week, somebody said, God is always behind the scenes and always ordains the scenes he is behind. Look at verse 40. It says that this group, they called the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they flogged them. We're talking, we're talking 39 lashes here, kind of a situation. Okay? Uh, they, they, they flogged them. So maybe that they would get it this time. Because this is now like the second or third time they've told them, stop talking about Jesus. Maybe now they've, they've raised the bar. Now, at first it was just like a, a stern talking to. Then they threw him in jail a couple times. Now they've flogged him. Now they've beaten him. Maybe that'll get the point to them, they think. Look at verse 41. The story switches. Kind of leaves us there, but it switches from the Sanhedrin council to the pers- persecuted believers. It says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, if you look up the word beaten or flogged, those are the words used to describe what happened to the disciples. The literal Greek word means to remove the skin. Or in some ways, just to skin. Talking about an animal, you you take the skin off. So now, now maybe we understand a little bit better what happened to these guys. We're not talking about a love tap here. We're talking about 39 lashes. We're talking about broken skin. We're talking about deep scars that they would have kept until their last days. And look at their response. It's amazing. They were rejoicing. In the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, Jesus says this. You're familiar with this. Familiar with this. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think this early church, especially the apostles, I think they had that view in mind. See, we get, I'm afraid, and I'm lumping myself right in here, I think we get real short-sighted in our lifetimes and we start thinking about us and maybe our kids and we're supposed to, to think about those things and evaluate the effect of the culture on our family. And yet what God is doing spans so far beyond 
the little blip that we are on the timeline of history. And I think that the apostles had that view because they heard what Jesus said. They said, look, they're going to persecute you. They persecute, they're going to persecute me. They persecuted the prophets before me. It's coming for you too. rejoice in this. He says, blessed are you. Do we, do we believe that? Because as I prayed, as we started this morning, I think we just really want comfort more than anything. I think God is, is using the events of what's going on in our nation, in the world, to, to kind of move us beyond that comfort zone. I don't, I don't know if you've felt that in recent weeks and months, but I think that God is beginning to do that. And I think he's been doing it all along, but certainly there's things that are happening that God is just kind of nudging us. Okay, Christian, you say you love Jesus. Let's see what's, let's see how you do here. And he's a good father. Don't get me wrong. He's not just putting us out there to get our, our neck chopped off or anything like that. He's saying, you know what? Let's just, let's just see and let's move you beyond where you're comfortable. Let's grow you in holiness. Let's progress you in this sanctification of being more like Jesus because the early church rejoiced at being counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. For the name, it says. They took 39 lashes. It doesn't say 39, but they took a beating, lost skin. They had literal skin in the game because of the name of Jesus. I hope and pray it never comes to that here, but are we willing to do that? This is one of those uh, things in the Bible that just defies logic, human reasoning, earthly understanding, if you will. It displays, I think, again, the uniqueness of Christianity. Because when Jesus came, and now what these men are teaching, is totally flip-flop from what the world tells us. Right? The way up is down. The way to be exalted is to humble yourself. The way to get more is to lose yourself and what you already have. The way to be strong is to rejoice in your weakness. The way to receive grace is to be humble. And here Luke describes in Acts the paradoxical privilege of suffering for Jesus. It makes no sense to a watching world, but suffering for Jesus makes total sense to those who are waiting for another world. These men, as they wrote to the church later on, the different churches in the New Testament, we have their epistles and their writings, they would, they would um, be clear in these things, that real followers of Jesus should expect to suffer. Maybe not physical lashings like they did, um, but lies being told about them, being misrepresented in the culture, maybe loss of friendships, maybe loss of family relationships for standing for truth, maybe loss of job positions. Here we've got Christians celebrating their beatings and I hope and pray that in our own sufferings, for Christ's sake, we might also respond with this kind of otherworldly joy. How many of you guys have ever been to the ocean before? Raise your hand. If you've, if you've not been to the ocean, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. There's a lot of water. Okay? And most of the time, depending on where you're at, some are bigger or higher, but there's, there's waves. My family enjoys going down to the Gulf Coast in Alabama, 
and we just kind of wade out. And so we like to go out there and the waves are pretty small out there. Uh, they're not real big, but you know, sometimes every once in a while you get some big waves, whether it's just a windy day or some ocean current or a big boat drives by or whatever the case might be, you get some really big waves. Now, if you don't see this wave coming or expect it, it can kind of wreck you for a while, right? Because waves have, they just keep coming. And so if you get turned upside down because of a wave, just about the time you get your, find out which way's up, get your head up, take a little breath. There's another one coming down on top of you, right? And it could be a bad deal. But if you know it's coming, you can avoid that, right? If the, the wave doesn't stop, that doesn't change, but how you go through it changes how it affects you, right? So if you, if you see it coming, you, you can actually dive through it and come out on the other side and it's kind of calm until that next wave comes by. And so that's a, that's a, a fun thing for the kids and us to do in the Gulf. But I think this kind of illustrates what we're seeing happen in the world and in the church here in around 8030. The forces of evil are trying to drown this new church with just wave after wave of, of persecution. And it's getting worse and it will continue to get worse. And the problem with that was what kept happening. The church kept popping back up on the other side better than it was before it went in. The arrest and the warning of the apostles, it didn't work. It didn't snuff it out. The second arrest didn't work. Imprisonment didn't work. A stern talking to didn't work. Fear-mongering didn't work. Even a physical beating couldn't knock out what God was doing in the book of Acts. Have you guys ever heard of Richard Wormbrand? Uh, we watched a movie a couple of years ago about Sabina, his wife, and that shared a lot of their testimony. Uh, tortured for Christ. Uh, just a, a horrific scenario and story. It's one that we need to understand and hear, but it's, it's, it's hard. Um, Kent Hughes has a commentary on the book of Acts, and he was alive when Richard Warmbrand was traveling and giving testimony, and he says this. Uh, he talks about the joy that Richard Warmbrand had. This is a lengthy quote. It's in, your, it's in your notes if you want to follow along, or you can just listen. He, he talks about Richard Warmbrand being in a Romanian prison. He says his tormentors ripped chunks of flesh out of him, and he had the scars to prove it. He was sentenced to solita- solitary confinement, and for weeks or even months on end, no one would speak to him in his tiny cell. Amazingly, during all of that, there were times when he was overcome with joy. He would actually stand up in his weakened state and, di- and dance around his cell, confident that the angels were dancing with him. He was released from prison unexpectedly, and as he left the prison, dressed like a scarecrow, with his teeth rotted and in terrible shape, he met a peasant woman on the road carrying a basket full of beautiful strawberries. When she offered him one, he started to take it, but then said, no thanks, I'm going to fast. He went home to his wife and they prayed and fasted as a memorial to the joy he had experienced in prison, asking God for the same kind of joy outside of prison. The world doesn't understand that. It's hard sometimes for us to hear stories like that and understand that. 
And yet, the Bible, the, the New Testament authors often write about this kind of joy. Peter himself writes about it in First Peter 1. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuine, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, that is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he gives us this wonderful encouragement. And I think it's for us even today. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This unstoppable joy of the Lord under persecution is, I think, the Holy Spirit pressing down the accelerator on the church on what's going on. How else could people in that state of being beaten and skin being torn off of them in the apostles or Richard Wormbrand or any of the hundreds of years in between, how else could people respond in joy? It is only by the Spirit of God in them The Spirit is pressing down that accelerator and training the church for Christian mission and what it would look like going forward. And that's, I think, what makes verse 42, the last verse of this chapter, possible. Read that with me. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Did you hear that? Every day and in every place, they continued teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one. Nobody else. It's him. In the temple. Right exactly in the place where they've been arrested a couple of times now, where they've been beaten, they go right back there and start preaching the same message. Not only that, but in house to house, wherever God would lead them, they would teach and they would preach the gospel. Guys, small groups are nothing new. It's not a new strategy that we've thought up. It's been going on for a long time. They'd get together in their homes and they'd teach and they'd preach and they'd learn and they'd grow. As often as they had opportunity, whether it was publicly or privately, they spoke of Jesus. As we wrap things up today, notice what it was that preceded the apostles standing firm under this latest wave of persecution. I think it's obedience. Look back at verse 29 and 32. See, Peter and the apostles began their answer to the council by saying, we must obey God rather than men. And then they concluded in verse 32 by saying, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The witnessing power of the Holy Spirit came through obedience to Christ and his word. They boldly stood for truth and rested in the joy of the Lord, and they did it without fear. Charles Spurgeon said, fear not, be brave for Christ, live bravely for him who died lovingly for you. Let's take just a moment for just some self-reflection. These questions I think are in your notes too, but as, as I ask them out loud, Maybe just close your eyes and let the Spirit speak. Ask yourself this. Am I living consistently in view of what I know about Christ? Am I living a life that's in accord with what I'm learning in the Scriptures? 
Am I refusing to do what I know God wants? Am I refusing to share my faith because of fear of rejection or appearing unintellectual or uncultured or some other reason? See, we will not have the power of the Spirit if we're saying no to God. We see the power manifest itself in all kinds of of incredible ways in the book of Acts. And we want that for for the church today. We want those kinds of things happening in the church today. But we're not going to see the power of God displayed if we're saying no to him, will we? Lest we think that this kind of obedience isn't worth it, just peek forward to chapter 6 in Acts. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase... And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And hear this. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I don't know that these priests were necessarily guys on this religious council that they've been hearing Peter preach to. But you better believe it could be. A multitude. Disciples multiplied. And many of these guys who thought they knew the right thing now were actually truly converted because of the message of Jesus. Look at what the faithful testimony of these believers led to. Some of these religious leaders became obedient to the faith. That's encouraging, to say the least. The efforts that we make on behalf of the Lord through His Spirit do not ever come up empty, brothers and sisters. Every word of His that is spoken never returns void. It always accomplishes exactly the purpose that God intends for it. So go and stand and speak life. Continue praying for those who seem to have a hardened heart towards the Lord. You might say like this religious council here. They heard the truth of the message of the gospel and their response was not humility. It was arrogance and pride and anger. There are people in our lives who respond that way still to the gospel. Now maybe they don't beat us when we share it with them but maybe they speak bad about us. Maybe they oppose us in other ways. Continue praying for them. All hope is not lost. Continue in unashamed obedience to what the Lord is calling you to do, perhaps in even speaking to them again. Because as Romans chapter 116 says, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, for anyone and everyone who believes this means that even if your heart has been hardened toward God, his love and kindness is still calling you to humble yourself, to repent and to trust Jesus as your Lord and savior. He's the only one by whom sins are forgiven. He's calling today. We still proclaim the same gospel message of repentance, of faith as these apostles did. It's the same thing. Paul, Paul says, if you hear another gospel being preached, don't listen to it. Reject it. This is the same gospel, brothers and sisters. The, Peter, the, the sermon that Peter preached is the same message I hope that you're hearing this morning. It's about Jesus. God has risen him from the dead, and the gospel is his story. And it still has the power to save every person who believes. The question is, is that you? Do you believe? As we pray this morning, I hope that you'll reflect on that. Lord, I know in my own life and heart, 
there are parts that I'm refusing to give over to you. I got to believe that there's others listening this morning who would say the same for them. And whether it's just out of embarrassment or out of pride or whatever it is, Lord, we've kept things back. We've refused to do what we know that you want us to do. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. We confess these things to you. And we trust and know that you are going to forgive forgive us of these things and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you do that through the blood of your Son. And so I pray that when we look at the cross, we remember the agony, not because we enjoy it, Lord, but because of what it accomplished for every person who believes. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with the Father. And so we glory in Jesus. And when we face persecution as he did, Lord, I pray and ask that we would have otherworldly joy. And when we report these things to our brothers and sisters, that we wouldn't be met with condensation and we wouldn't be met with, well, you should have done this different for the sake of whatever. Lord, instead we would say, thank you for standing for truth. Even when it was hard. Thank you for not giving up the faith when it wasn't easy. Instead, thank you for blazing the trail forward for us and for our children. And Lord, I pray that that describes me and I pray that that describes my brothers and sisters when we face various trials of varying kinds. That in how we suffer, we might also rejoice and give you the glory. Thank you for this word from the Spirit this morning. I pray that you have your way in our hearts. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.